0: This episode of The Jewish Views contains discussions that some listeners may find distressing. The best of The Jewish Views on the BRCA1 gene mutation. Mother and daughter team Gabby and Allison tell us how that's affected their family. Ivor Baddiel tells us about his father's battle with Pick's disease. And we recall the heart-wrenching story of Max Schiller, and the subsequent Maxis Foundation set up in his memory. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news from the past week, I'm Phil Dave. Labour's governing body has unanimously backed measures to make it easier to punish anti Semitism in the party. In a move personally backed by leader Jeremy Corbyn and the Momentum activist group, the National Executive Committee adopted proposals from the Jewish labour movement which make racism, and specifically anti Semitism, a specific disciplinary offence for the first time. However, the addition to party rules must still be debated by delegates at the party's annual conference next week, ahead of a crunch vote which senior Labour figures hope will start to repair relations with British Jews after a string of controversies engulfed the party over the past 18 months. Online video giant YouTube has been condemned for failing to take down extremist content, including films praising Adolf Hitler and Taliban propaganda. An extensive study of Islamist and far-right extremist material shared on the website found more than 120 videos were not removed even after they had been flagged to the site's administrators. Yvette Cooper, chairwoman of the Influential Commons Home Affairs Select Committee, said it was simply unacceptable that some content remained live weeks after being reported. A spokesperson from YouTube said, addressing the challenge posed by extremism is a critical challenge for us all, and we're determined to be part of the solution. A recently widowed man has released a video in memory of his late wife in order to raise awareness for life-enhancing cancer treatments. Daniel Cohen's wife Katie died following a battle with lung cancer aged 32. She was able to live an additional two years and subsequently marry him with thanks to immunotherapy treatment. Now Mr Cohen is hoping that others will gain access to such treatments after he shared his story as part of a nationwide cancer awareness drive. And finally, for the third straight Jewish year, the most popular baby names in Israel were Tamar and Muhammad. The Population and Immigration Authority of Israel's Interior Ministry released the figures ahead of Rosh Hashanah. Among the other popular names for boys were Joseph, David and Daniel, whilst for girls it included Adele, Miriam and Sarah. Just over 166,000 babies were born during the year, down from around 176,000 in the previous year.
1: That's the news. Now here's Andrew Sherwood with a look at the sport. Thanks very much, Phil. An English footballer playing in Israel has made a somewhat surprising claim, saying Israeli footballers are more technical than English ones. Nick Blackman is currently playing for Maccabi Tel Aviv, having joined them on a season-long loan from Derby County. Speaking after scoring in their 3-2 win over Maccabi Netanya, he said, It's a very, very strong league. The players are so technical, more technical than the average in England for sure, 100% more technical. Staying in Israel, their two European representatives enjoyed mixed fortunes in their opening Europa League matches. Champions, Hapa El Sheva, got their campaign off to a winning start, beating Swiss side Lugano 2-1, but Maccabi Tel Aviv suffered a 1-0 loss against Sparta Prague in the Czech Republic. And finally, Karina Kaufman says she hopes she can inspire mums and dads to get fit, having represented Team GB at the World Sprint Triathlon Championships. The mother of four from East Finchley, who's also a personal trainer, said, I'm looking forward to using my experiences to help others build a healthy lifestyle. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at jewishnews.co.uk.
0: Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Hello there and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views. Let's start off with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer and online editor Jack Mendel. Welcome to you both. And a glance at the front page, Rich, tells us that Labour promises to tackle anti-Semitism. Oh, good. Good.
2: Yeah, we heard about that. That's exciting. They've been doing it, forget 5777, I think they've been doing it since around Moses' time for the last (laughs) 6,000 years or so. They've been (laughs) pledging to tackle anti-Semitism. This, as our listeners will not need reminding, is one of the, in my opinion, most monotonous, And disheartening and bleak political stories of of recent times. Labour Party's inability to tackle the anti-Semitism at its heart, particularly at the the far left wing of the party. Well, kicking, screaming, dragging its heels, this week the NEC, which is the governing body, has unanimously backed plans that it should crack down on anti-Semitism, have the full weight of its own laws brought to bear on those who are guilty. Now, this doesn't mean this is going to happen. It has to be given support of the leadership at the conference which takes place next week, the second major party conference. You may have been aware there was a Liberal Democrat party conference this week, but I didn't see any media much on that. I saw one pro- one programme and one, one thing on Newsnight and that was it. Well, I yeah. saw something
0: about Vince Cable, but yeah. I just assumed he was talking.
2: That, yes, that completely, I think, passed the the media this week. Anyway, we digress. So, the Labour Party conference next week they're going to address anti-semitism they're going to say that any conduct involving anti-semitism along with islamophobia of course and any other sorts of racism should be dealt with harshly and let's hope that potentially this might finally bookend 18 months of misery
3: i think most people in the jewish community would say that this is a good thing but also take this with a, a little bit of caution because there's a big difference between politics and policy The Labour Party can come out and condemn anti-Semitism and pass motion and publish reports and say how much they abhor anti-Semitism and all the rest. But it's not going to make a jot of difference unless anti-Semitism stops happening, unless councillors stop coming out and posting anti-Semitic things on social media. I think when this translates into substance then people will be a bit more reassured.
2: Yeah, I, I just like add I think there's been a lot of good work clearly done behind the scenes here. Jeremy Newmark, who stood up against Mike Freer and Finchling Golders Green, at the recent election, really got it in the neck from vast amounts of many leaders and and members of the Jewish community for opposing such a conservative friend of Israel. Well, clearly his Jewish labor movement have been the prime mover in getting this thing platformed and getting this thing discussed. Shami Chakrabarti, who also was, you know, the eponymous report was published by her last year into anti-Semitism, was also, I think, a prime mover in this. So good work's been done by some good people.
0: Okay, let's have a look at some of the stories making inside the paper this week. UJIA's annual dinner has occurred and there's a new chair in their midst.
2: There is. Louise Jacobs, who listeners may remember, used to be the head of the London Jewish Cultural Centre. And she oversaw the merger with JW3. She was named at UJIA's annual dinner this past week. Its first female chair, which somehow that surprises me. Yeah, well, UJA, I mean, you just look at the communal diary. They, I think, do more events in the community than than some of the, the other large or larger charities. So they are a very dynamic organisation. Forward thinking, you could say, because obviously there are very few women in in leadership roles in, in, on shore boards, in, in charities, in educational organisations. The Jewish Leadership Council had a report out a couple of years ago where they addressed this, and it's good to see that a real flagship organisation now has a, a woman at its head.
0: And of course, potentially other organisations might follow suit if they see this, Jack.
3: Well, let's hope so. We saw last week when the Jewish Leadership Council brought a delegation into Downing Street, there were Considerably more women than the previous year. We had Jewish care and Jewish women's aid represented by women. So hopefully, this will be the start of something new.
0: Okay. Now, one of the other stories in there this week, of course, we couldn't possibly let it slip by, some of the highlights of 5777. We're doing our highlights here on the podcast, but you've done it in the paper as well. What have been the moments that have stood out?
2: One of the benefits being a British Jewish newspaper is you get to do the New Year review twice. You get to do it (laughs) in in September and then just a few months later, you get to do it all over again. Yes, this is the practice one. In December, January. So whether it's 2017 into 2018, or 5,777 to 78. Uh, Yeah, it was a chance to look back, reflect over some of the profounder moments of the last 12 Hebrew months from the terror attacks, of course, that have have marred Britain, Manchester and London are particularly fresh in our minds to uh, the, the rise of... Donald Trump and the Rabbi Joseph Dweck saga and his very controversial statement saying that our sexuality is the foundation of our identity, he said in, in reference to homosexuality and its place in the Jewish community, which obviously upsets some people. Theresa May's epic election fail, the neo-Nazi rise in America. It's It's been a, a worrying 12 months, to say the least, with a, a dearth of, of any sort of stories that, that really leave a smile on your face.
3: And Jack, what are the moments that stand out for you? Well, I think the, the moments that have really stood out for me was Trump's election in America. I don't think anyone saw that coming. Over here, obviously, the terrorist attacks shocked this country. But also, I, I think people have started to, unfortunately, become used to it. And we, we are starting to integrate that as part of our daily lives. You know, fear when we go out, fear when we go on trains and in public places.
0: I'd say that, for me, there have been moments that have stood out that actually have brought communities together and have created some really powerful images as a result of it. In particular, I refer to, if you look at the Finsbury Park mosque attack, and the images of the Haredi community of Stamford Hill and all of that area, rallying around and trying to support the Muslim community of Finsbury Park. And then also there was another image when in Barcelona, the terrorist attack happened there. To me, the most powerful image out of all of that terrorist attack was a religious Jewish man comforting a Muslim man who was actually crying at the scene of the terrorist attack. So hopefully there are some plus points to come out of a really tumultuous year, should we say?
2: Yes, indeed. I can only echo the thoughts and, and prayers of, of everyone in the community and, and, and really pray that we all experience sweetness uh, rather than bitterness in the next 12 months. Well, thank
0: you both very much and to you both. That's where we'll have to leave it for a look at the paper for this week. And don't forget that you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London. Well, obviously this week's a bit earlier. Or you can read the e-paper online at jewishnews.co.uk. Now, let's start our look back over some of the highlights of 5777. It was back in March that we first heard from our first guests, and 26-year-old Gabby Jacobs spoke to us about having a double preventative mastectomy inspired by her mother Alison de Gaulle's battle with breast and ovarian cancer. It's due to the presence of the BRCA1 gene, a gene that is known to increase a person's chance of developing certain types of cancers and is prevalent in Ashkenazi Jews. I spoke to both Gabby and Alison and I started by asking Gabby to tell us when she first discovered she was a carrier of BRCA1.
4: I found out I had the gene about a year and a half ago. I kind of knew that I had it I always sort of knew so that way when I found out it wasn't such a shock and I knew straight away that if I did have it that I would want to do the surgeries because I don't want to end up like my mum going through such terrible treatment so I knew that it was the right decision to do.
0: Well Alison let's let's bring Um, you in at that stage because perhaps you can explain just exactly what you are going through.
5: Okay yeah so in July 2014 I started off going for surgery for breast cancer. And it was during this surgery that they discovered that something seriously else was going on. And they discovered I also had ovarian cancer. If I wind back the clock eight months before, I was having symptoms, but it wasn't particularly picked up, which is a very typical thing of ovarian cancer, that I was told I had diverticulitis, I had lots of things going on so it all came to a head in the July 2014 and it was quite a shocking diagnosis because I was very seriously ill at that stage and that's the very first time we had been told about BRCA.
0: And do you mind sort of maybe sort of saying how you are now how are you faring at the moment?
5: Yeah so at the moment so I, I had six months of what I would class extremely harsh chemotherapy and then uh, since then, so that would have gone from the January 2015, I've been on something called Avastin, which is classed as maintenance chemotherapy. So I have that as an infusion still every three weeks with another tablet called Exemestane. I've been on that for a good two years now. And I think considering everything, I'm doing pretty well.
0: You so. look. If you don't mind me saying, you do look absolutely <laughs> amazing and you would never know that you are no. going through what you're going through. But Gabby, I'm guessing that sort of for you, watching your mum go through this gruelling treatment mm. must have been your main motivation yeah. to do something about definitely,
4: it. Definitely, definitely. Like at the beginning when the chemo was so strong and it was terrible and why would anyone want to be in that position? Like do something about it and you don't have to go through that.
0: Well, you are obviously quite headstrong to put yourself in a position where you are mentally prepared to deal with. However, yeah. there will be people listening who say that undertaking surgery that, let's be honest, as it stands, isn't necessary, mm. is a massive step. And therefore, why would you put yourself through that? But I guess you've got the answer in the form of your mum sitting next to you. really. Exactly. Haven't
4: you? Exactly. Like, I, mean, I know if my mum knew she would have had it and she wouldn't be in this position. That's really the whole point in this is that with the BRCA you can
5: have preventative surgery and I was never given the opportunity so I would urge anybody to find out if they are BRCA you can test and you can prevent cancer and it's it's like knowledge is power it's the most amazing thing that today we can prevent it so that's why we want to speak out to give people knowledge because it wasn't out there for me.
0: Well, it must have come as some sort of sense of relief to you when you knew, Alison, that Gabby was doing something in a bid to try and hopefully prevent having to go through the treatment that you're having to go through now.
5: Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. I mean, I could not make Gabriella have a mastectomy. I mean, I couldn't force her to do it. So the fact that she chose to do it, it sort of made made me feel at peace that I knew she would be safe because it was my force of driving... To keep my daughter safe, because we knew what would happen if she didn't have preventative surgeries.
0: And Gabby, you must have obviously ummed and quite a lot before doing this. Is not a decision that one takes lightly, mm, I'm guessing. And therefore, who was it that, apart from your mum, that did you discuss it with any friends? And what kind of reaction did you get?
4: Yeah, well, I discussed it with all my closest friends. I mean, at the big at, at first, I was very private about it. I only spoke about it with my closest friends, but. They all knew that it was the right decision, definitely, to do. I mean, at first I wanted to get it done straight away, but my doctor, my surgeon said, no, you know, wait a year, enjoy your married life and then do it. So now I've done it and I haven't looked back, so... Well,
0: of course, you are recently married, so we yes. should say mouse us off for that. Thank
4: you, thank you.
0: Well, Alison, you have, as a result of it, obviously the two of you actually have become very proactive in trying to raise awareness Of BRCA1. So maybe could you tell people listening who maybe don't understand quite what BRCA1 mutation is, what it actually is and how it manifests itself?
5: Okay, so if you carry the BRCA1 gene mutation, it means that first of all, you have a 50-50 chance in passing it on to any of your children which is male or female and as a female carrier you actually have a 85% lifetime risk of developing breast cancer and a 60% lifetime risk of developing ovarian cancer so it's a very high risk as a female carrier which is why they say you should have preventative surgery
0: and you were saying about how it affects some might be surprised to hear it also affects men as well yeah, yeah. Mm. Do we know how that affects men exactly? Is it the same? Is it obviously, is it, it obviously wouldn't be a variant, but is it breast no. cancer? But yeah,
5: Yes, a man can get breast cancer. It's, it's a much lower risk. But a man can also develop prostate cancer and melanoma and pancreatic cancer. And
0: this is quite prevalent within the Jewish community, isn't it, for some reason? It seems mm. to be a genetic condition mm. that affects not exclusively, but primarily Jewish people. Is that yeah. right?
5: One in 40. It's one in 40, mm-hmm. us against one in 800 of the general population.
0: And the first time that you learnt about this, I'm assuming, was when you weren't well, Alison, is that right?
5: Yes, yeah, so I think we sort of picked up a little bit when we saw Angelina Jolie, but it actually I knew that it had come down her maternal side. So with for me it came down my paternal side, and nobody sort of had picked up on that because I had a paternal aunt that had died at 52 I don't um, think
4: anyone would think it could come no. from the mail. And that's what we want to get out there that it can come from the mail.
5: It, it's like, who would think that a man can pass ovarian and breast cancer onto his daughter? Mm. It's just something you don't really think is logical.
0: Well, it certainly is something that I never considered. So no. I thank you for at least educating me and also <laughs> anyone else listening. <laughs> Gabby, what would you say to anyone who is listening who perhaps maybe fears that they are a carrier and therefore, in, even if they are a carrier and that they have say they have been proven that they do carry BRCA1 but they are umming and ahhing about preventative surgery. You're obviously the other side of that mm. now. What would you what advice would you give to them?
4: I'd say, do it. Obviously get tested. And if you are positive, you know, don't be don't be scared, you know. Like I obviously it is a scary thing to think about, but it's honestly the best thing I have ever done. And, you know, you save your own life. So, you know, why wouldn't you want to do that?
0: Well, I'm guessing that you must have this overwhelming sense of relief. I oh suppose. my god, I'm
4: so relieved! Like every day, I'd wake up and I'd be scared if there's a lump or anything, and now I wake up and I've just like a big weight's been lifted off my shoulders.
0: Mother and daughter team Alison Duggal and Gabby Jacobs talking to me there about the way the BRCA1 gene mutation has affected their family, and of course, leading on to the discussion of how BRCA1 does manifest itself in quite a lot of Ashkenazi Jews. You're listening to a special best-of edition of The Jewish Views as we look back at some of our highlights from 5777. Still to come on this edition, we'll hear the heart-wrenching story of Max Schiller from his mother, Shearer, who set up in his memory Max's foundation after he passed away from an undetected heart condition. But before that, it's time to hear what happened when arts editor Kate Fulton spoke to Ivor Baddiel about the documentary that he and his brother David made called The Trouble with Dad. It looked at their father's battle with Pick's disease, a form of Alzheimer's. Kate started by asking Ivor to tell us about the response the documentary had received.
6: Well, very well. Really, really pleasing. It's been a very interesting process, You know, as as we've both said, as David has said, it wasn't an easy decision to put my father on on film and expose him to so many people.
7: Was he okay Uh, about it? Did you have to kind of... I mean, how could you or could you get consent uh, for him to be filmed before?
6: Well, no, not really. I mean, you know, in the moment, yes. He obviously was aware of the cameras there and we asked him permission in in the moment. But, you know, his, his memory being what it is, it wouldn't be fair to say it was proper consent. So that, that's a very difficult one and, you know, there's still angst and, you know, if people say we shouldn't have done it, I think that's a valid point of view and may, maybe it was the wrong thing to do. But I think the the pros outweighed the cons and, and also we had a lot of editorial control as to how he was portrayed. I mean, nobody obviously had any interest in making a film that made him or anybody look, you know, yeah. look bad. Over um, what period but, did but you we, film? We, we were given a lot of control as to, you know, how he was portrayed. So... I've written a piece in in, in this week's Jewish News, uh, which sort of, on one level, explains why why we did it. I mean, without going into you know, the detail of that, but you know, dementia and it's just it's the biggest killer in this country now of all people, not just old people, and it's on the rise, and it's a terrible, terrible yeah. prospect for anybody.
7: What was what uh, do you think was your main motivation for getting the, the the documentary made?
6: Well, you know, I'll be honest with you. I mean, this this isn't really in the documentary, but my father was at his worst. My mother sadly died uh, just over two years ago, and cut a long story short, we we wanted to we you know, we were advised and we thought it'd be a good idea to try and get my father in a home, and we went to visit some homes. and uh, This is the three of me and my two brothers, and speaking to the staff there, you know, we we explained to them that my father could be quite difficult, quite challenging, and to you know to our faces they said, "Oh, don't worry, we're very used to people like that." And then they met him and to assess him, and, and they basically all turned him down. They said, "No, I'm afraid we could, we can't deal with his behaviour. And this is
7: because this Picks disease it was, it was quite an advanced level. John, to just if you can just sort of sum up for those people who may not have seen the the documentary yet, what what he's actually got.
6: He, well, he, it's an interesting one as he? well. Di- he, he's diagnosed as having Picks disease. I mean. There was originally some debate between experts as to whether that's the correct diagnosis, but there's certainly he's got some sort of frontotemporal lobe uh, dementia. And, and this is one of the reasons for doing the documentary. I think most people, certainly myself, when they think of dementia, they think predominantly of Alzheimer's, and there are actually 200 different variants of dementia, and they think predominantly of memory loss. Now, obviously, that is a factor in my father's dementia, but I would say more impressingly if you like it was for a long time he was very disinhibited and was exhibiting very challenging behaviors you know he was particularly sexual his behavior particularly sexually aggressive towards women he was spitting at times he got thrown out of a jewish daycare center because he got into a fight and really you know the, the disinhibition was something i don't think people necessarily associate these sort of challenging behaviors with dementia but Believe you me, as, as people who, you know, families who are dealing with it will know in, in a lot of cases that that's yeah. I- incredibly challenging and difficult to deal with. And that's what we wanted to highlight. And that and the fact that there doesn't seem to be any provision for people like that. You know, say we tried to get my father into home. The only place that, that said they might be able to take him, uh, said they would only do so with additional one to one care. Um, so he would have to have somebody, as well as all the, the, the regular staff, he would have to have an extra person there the whole time. And if I remember correctly, that, that was going to run into the region of £5,000 a week. Oof, right. Um, yeah, which is, be, is beyond virtually anybody's means. How long did the filming uh,
7: take, actually? Just over what period of time? Because you do see over the documentary a sort a an unfortunate decline.
6: Yes, well, I mean, you know, the thing now... As you see in the documentary. Unfortunately, uh, last summer he got quite ill. He was actually in hospital three separate occasions with what was originally a urine infection, and then affected his kidneys. And it was terrible, to be honest. I mean, I you know I thought I thought it was all over, um, but actually, pleasingly, on one level, physically, he must be quite,
5: know, quite healthy <laughs> yeah. because
6: he he came he came through it each time. But the corresponding mental effect was that yes, he he was much quieter. He he was less himself, I and mean, what the film points out in his case is that he he this disinhibition he became a sort of exaggerated version of himself. He was always quite a sort of gruff, sweary bloke, but you know in the past he he knew where to draw the line, whereas with yeah. the Pick's disease he didn't. And um, for those who
7: don't know Pick's disease, if you have always had a you know somewhat sort of a loud not not I don't mean the word Larry, but you know sort of a, as you you to use your word sweary, mm. what made you notice that there was a problem. What was the first inkling that you had that mm, this isn't this is really well, not on?
6: Yeah. To be fair, I mean, the, the first inkling was the sort of memory memory loss side of it. He was sort of more forgetful, and and David was the one who who first picked up on it and thought some, something might be wrong, and then he went for the, the sort of fairly standard test that you, you go for. Um, and initially, it, it was the memory loss, but then, I mean, this, this is where it's very difficult. I mean, the, the disinhib- disinhibition kicked in to an extent but also I mean I think and this is a whole other area of people with dementia you know clearly my mother dying had a had an effect on him that's very difficult to gauge because he couldn't vocalize it he couldn't remember it for a long time so I think as David says in the documentary I mean one of the probably the worst day of my life you know was well the worst weekend of my life was the weekend my mother died but you know so along with that, we had to tell my father and then we had to tell him again and yeah. to him again and again. And,
7: and the yeah, fact there was, was that uh, in the documentary, you can see that the card that you'd written by the phone reminding him, that must be also well, a reminder to you. Yes,
6: eventually we, we, had to, we were advised to do that. I mean, it was very difficult. He, he was asking, obviously, where, where my mother was and, and it just feels weird not telling him. But then every time we told him what happened, he kind of went into a sort of shock. So that wasn't good. And then eventually we were sort of advised by a psychiatrist, a psychogeriatrician, to sort of just sort of say, well, she's not here at the moment, which wasn't actually a lie per se. But it it kind of ticked all the boxes, if you like. It stopped him having to deal with the shock every single time. And it didn't feel as bad as as not telling him the truth, if you see what I mean.
7: Yeah. I wanted to ask you, given that David's, doing this show all about your family and you've had this documentary sort of all about your private life and your family. Do you ever feel to some extent you've lost your privacy? Do you feel a bit overexposed?
6: I don't personally, no. You know, well, I mean, I'm not a celebrity and, you know, people aren't (laughs) aren't interested in other aspects of my private life. I mean, and I think David's chosen to expose... (laughs) <laughs> of my mother's life in his show, uh, and more and more of my, my, you know, my father's life. But he, he does it in a very sort of warm, intelligent, thoughtful, challenging way. And, and there's no doubt my mother would have absolutely loved it, being the sort of person she was, despite the fact that it's incredibly revealing. I mean, one of the um,
7: lovely things about seeing the documentary was the fact that how, how close to the fact. There's you, you, something about all of you that look very similar. There's a real theme going <laughs> on there. Not quite the same cookie cutter, but definite theme. What would yes. what would happen if one of you, any of any of you, wanted to expose more about the family than the other? How would you how would you limit that?
6: Well, it depends what you mean, really. It, it's a difficult one. I mean, everyone has a, their own story to tell it's david's story it's part of his life <laughs> you know I, it, it's a, it's an odd one because before he did the show he sat down with me and dan and we he talked us through it and we, we knew you know we knew sort of what he was going to do and how far he was going to go and and to be honest you know some other people sort of it almost feels as if they were telling me i should be upset and i should be angry and, you know, you you can't fake that sort of thing. You either are there yeah. and angry or you're not. You kind of feel it in the pit of your stomach. And and I wasn't. When I went to see the show for the first time, I genuinely loved it. For me, you know, I, I said at the time, it, it was a bit as if he brought my mother back to life in some way um. in the room. And I, I did love it. And it felt in some respects in the lunacy of what has been my family history. It was just another... It felt quite natural for my mother's sex life to be exposed to the world.
7: Well, thank you so much. And I think you've become, I wouldn't exactly say, the poster boys for actually dealing with it, but it's been extremely eye-opening for everybody and hopefully will lead to some research.
6: It's a difficult decision putting my father on television like that, but he comes over very well. And and hopefully, yes, it will prompt more research and more people to open up about it.
0: Ivor Badil talking to arts editor Kate Fulton there about his father's battle with Pick's disease, a form of Alzheimer's. You are listening to The Best of the Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish Schmooze. Today we'll hear what happened when Clive and Tony were joined by founder of Mitzvah Day, Laura Marks, and Rabbi Morris Michaels when they discussed Final Resting Places. But before that, it's time now to remind ourselves what happened when I spoke to Shira Schiller, the founder of Max's Foundation. Max's Foundation was set up in memory of her late son, who sadly died aged just 10 years old from an undetected heart condition. I should warn you that what you're about to hear might be distressing to listen to. But all the same, I started by asking Shira to tell us a little bit about Max. Max was 10 years
8: old. When we lost him. Prior to that, he was a very happy, very cheeky little boy. He loved his Xbox. He was a bit of a nerd. He loved Marvel. He was really, really kind hearted, very sensitive, and just very funny.
0: And I'm guessing that's seemingly healthy as well.
8: He was. In the last couple of years before we lost him, we noticed that he was struggling with some sports. Um, he used to be very sporty. He used to play basketball a lot. He used to play football a lot, but over the period of two years, he started struggling, and it was hard because we didn't know whether it was just him being a normal boy and saying, "Oh, I can't, don't want to," because didn't want to, or or if there was a problem. And then after some blood tests, it showed some elevated levels. Of a Of a particular I can't remember the name of it, but I think it's PK levels in his blood, which got us referred to Great Ormond Street, because they thought there may be a slight case for a muscular dystrophy or something that was affecting his muscles that would cause the, the tiredness and the lack of energy that he had. So we' just started down the route of testing with Great Ormond Street in the November so he'd had an ecg he'd had an echo on his heart he'd had some muscle testing as well and he was due for some more testing in the new year but unfortunately we didn't make it to the new year
0: when the when when that horrible moment 2 years ago happened what i think this is just the most horrible question but i have to ask it Can you even begin to describe what that is like as a parent? Because I could imagine that anyone listening to this right now who is a parent can only think it's just beyond the worst nightmare. It was horrific.
8: I actually don't think there's a word that's strong enough to describe what happened. You know, when we put him, he went to bed, we said goodnight, sweet dreams, I love you. You know, the normal nighttime. And then a couple of hours later, when we went upstairs to bed, my husband went up first and he screamed my name. I have never, ever heard him scream my name like that. Flew up the stairs and Max was lying there. We got him out of bed. I was ringing 999. Actually, my daughter was as well. We were doing trying to resuscitate him, the person on the phone, the uh, 999 operator talking us through what to do. And then the ambulance, two ambulances turned up very, very quickly and they were working on him and then we went to the hospital and they obviously tried. uh, But I think we kind of knew... Deep down, I that we'd lost him. It was just I remember saying constantly, bring, please bring him back, bring him, you know, please bring him back. But it was it it was just a horrific night. It was just it is your worst nightmare.
0: Um, goodness. Um, could you? Can you tell us a bit about the condition that he had because you have, I assume, since discovered sort of what it was because obviously Max's foundation, which we'll get on to in just a moment, is set up to try and do research. So tell us a bit about the condition.
8: Okay, so we found out afterwards that he had a condition called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is a thickening of the heart muscle wall, the the heart wall which obviously has an impact on blood flow and the function of the heart and it causes sudden death as we've found out it's very difficult to detect in in younger children in over 14s and generally those who have gone through puberty it's much easier to detect with an ecg or an echo but in younger children like max the ECG and the echo wouldn't have picked it up because the heart wasn't developed enough to show any abnormalities. And hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is a genetic condition, but they wouldn't have thought to look for it because neither myself nor my husband have had it or we've never been diagnosed with it. We know now, having been tested, that we don't have it. So it's very, very, very difficult to diagnose
0: but if it is genetic, then where would it have come from if you and your husband don't have it? Then?
8: Well, there is a chance at a genetic level that Max made it up by himself. We don't know. There's, for genetic testing, it's very difficult to pinpoint exactly what they're looking for. It's been described to us as looking for a spelling mistake in one line, in one book, in a huge library. So while there are known genetic codes that show there is a problem, they don't know all of them yet.
0: Well, incredibly enough, you are turning the most horrible situation into hopefully something very positive. And you have, in the last two years, started Max's Foundation. Can you tell us a bit about the foundation and what its purpose is?
8: Okay, so we are surrounded by the most amazing people who have helped us get to where we are as a family and with the charity we set the foundation up actually just under a year ago with the help of friends who are now trustees of the charity and our aim is to help fund research into hypertrophic cardiomyopathy just to help stop this happening if if we can stop it happening to even one other family, that will make it will make what we've you know even what we've been through is horrific we wouldn't want it to happen to somebody else, and there is so much work that needs to be done and so much research that needs to be done so we' are, that's what we want to do we want just want to help wherever we can. We're really fortunate to be working with Great Horman the Street with the Centre for, for Inherited Cardiac Diseases, which is run by Dr. Juan Caskey, who is our ambassador for the charity as well. So we're working very closely with him to raise funds for infrastructure funding that he needs for his research. It's quite easy to get, not easy, but it's slightly easy for them to get funding for research, but not so easy to get funding for infrastructure which is desperately needed. So we've said to him, tell us what you need and we will do what we can to raise the funds.
0: Well, I know there's going to be people listening now who want to know how they can help. So what should they be doing?
8: Okay, so we have a website, which is www.maxisfoundation.org.uk. We're also on Facebook as well. If you look for Max's Foundation, you can donate via the website, through virgin giving there's a donate button we've had people who've run events for us you know everything from putting on dinners for us to bad hair days our local hairdresser dressed up for halloween and donated the money to us so there's there are so many ways people running marathons for us there's amazing people out there who have donated money and helped us
0: well i think it's fair to say that none so amazing as you are for talking to me so thank you very much indeed i would just say maybe just finally what would you perhaps say to any parent who's listening out there who maybe has spotted something that they're not quite sure about what advice would you give to them
8: i would say go just go with your instincts if you think that something's wrong or if you're concerned go and see your gp talk to them find out what you can and you know just you know be aware
0: incredibly brave Shira Schiller telling me about Max's foundation set up in memory of her son Max who died aged just 10 years old from an undetected heart condition you are listening to The Best of, The Jewish Views from 5777. In just a moment's time, we'll hear a delicious-sounding recipe from Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips. But before that, it's time to tell you that if you want to get in contact with us, we might be playing out some of The Best of, but we always love to hear your Jewish views. You can always email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash the Jewish views or on twitter we are at JewishViewsUK. uk well now it's time to hear what happened on a recent schmooze discussion this is when clive and tony were joined by founder of mitzvah day laura marx and rabbi morris michaels from bournemouth reform synagogue the discussion was about final resting places and we join it now where clive has just asked tony to tell us how often he visits his relatives
9: Probably once a year, unless I'm at a cemetery for a lavoir or a stone setting. My parents are in Bushi, and if we're there, then I go when I go there. So, But basically, it's really once a year.
10: It's a very interesting thing, isn't it, at this time of year, because the difference between Christianity and Judaism, and I was told this once by a Catholic priest. I went to a Catholic school, and the Catholic priest said to me, the difference between my religion and yours is that we worship death, you worship life, Hmm. and yet at the time of Rosh Hashanah, We all go to the cemeteries to visit our past ones, our loved past ones. And at the same time, we talk about asking the Almighty to put us in the Book of Life for the coming year. Rabbi Michael, you might be able to tell us some reason why this suddenly becomes so important.
11: We have come to a time of the year when we begin to think about our immortality. Because, as you say, the muscle incorporates into it, you know, who will live and who will die. That phrase is just so, uh, it's so poignant. Um, So we do believe, you know, we have to start thinking about our own mortality. And when we do that, it's an inevitability that we will also think about the deaths of those of our loved ones. And so visiting the grave at this time of the year is a very important uh, part of our tradition and custom. Laura, what's your view on that?
12: Well, I'm not a big uh, cemetery visitor, to be honest. But when I think about it and when we start talking about it, I realise that when I think about the people closest to me who've died, which is my grandparents, because I'm lucky enough to have my parents still alive and healthy, I do think about them whenever we have major family occasions and so this week I was at my mum's for Rosh Hashanah dinner and my parents are 87 and 91 and uh, hosted 20 of us for dinner on Sunday night and I think then I think about my grandparents because we all used to go to Grandma Nathan, my mum's mum for dinner for Rosh Hashanah. And when I think about death, I think very much about how we continue to live the lives that those who have come before us have laid out for us. So dinner for Rosh Hashanah at my parents' house is very similar to how it was at my grandparents' Mm -hmm. house. And I hope that when I take it over, then it will be similar again, and that my children will therefore be experiencing my grandparents, even though my grandparents died when the children were babies. So there's something quite comforting and quite positive about family occasions and how the people who passed away in families actually are still in some way still around the table.
9: Presumably that goes back to your great grandparents and and further back as well because you're repeating and repeating and repeating going down the line to today.
12: Well probably except Mm -hmm. that I don't don't remember them and I don't don't remember my great grandparents and my great grandparents were the ones who um, came to Britain. So I suppose life was very different then, Uh, whereas my grandparents were all born here. uh, Life is remarkably similar in many, many ways in terms of the family.
9: Is it it just as comforting to go to the graveside, do you think?
12: Um, I'm not sure. For me, I like to think about the positive things about the lives of my grandparents, and I relate to that much more around the dinner table. And not only around the dinner table, I can look at my children... And I can see my grandparents. And that to me also is how life continues.
9: Yes, yes. Very interesting. When my mother died, which is eight, nearly nine years ago, my son wanted to take all the photographs and everything else. And we did a tour, a trip around the cemeteries in London because I've got grandparents and uncles and aunts and they're buried in various places. And we just made notes because he wanted to do a family tree. That was very comforting. He felt comforted by that because he didn't know his grandfather, but he knew his grandmother. And he started drawing up a family tree. We haven't completed it yet, but uh, it was something very comforting about that as well. So there is comfort in death,
10: although you're remembering life. It's very interesting you said that because there was a time when I thought that there's no point in going to visit a grave because the person that you loved and cared for is no longer there they've gone on mm. on and upwards perhaps but when my wife died i do find immense comfort from going mm-hmm. to visit her grave and there have also been one of the things that makes me very sad is that my parents are both buried in zimbabwe and other members of family and also people that i know are buried in many different parts of the world mm. and i'm not able to visit, Go their grave. visit them yes
11: I think there is, for some people, a great degree of comfort in being able to go to the graveside because it's a place where one can have thoughts about the departed in silence and giving them their your fullest attention.
10: It's not always just silence because it's well known that many people go and talk to the person uh, who's buried there.
11: Of course, of course. But, uh, you know, you don't actually have to go to the graveside to talk to a person. Most of the people I know who have uh, been bereaved tell me that they still speak to their loved ones in their home or, or wherever. So that in itself isn't a good enough reason for going. But there are other people who actually derive a great deal of discomfort from being at the cemetery. It's a reminder of that death, which they'd rather not have. It's a horses for courses thing. I mean, I, well, ever since I've been a rabbi, um, I've organised a trip to the cemetery for members of my congregation if they wish to go. And a number of people will choose to go. It's a small number, always is. And I'm assuming that that's because they will get something very special out of going not by themselves, but going with others. And I think there is an element of of togetherness that's important in this as well. I can remember my mother telling me when she was a girl, her mother, together with her mother's sisters, all used to go to their parents' grave. We're going back many, many years now, of course. And she said one of the things about it was it was like a family outing, that all the sisters came together. And maybe, you know, They didn't do that very frequently during the course of the year, but it was once a year when the family actually got together. And they took great comfort from being together with each other at that time.
10: Now, it's very interesting that you say that because in Singapore, and this is not Jewish, but in Singapore, the people who live there, there is a special cemetery which is fascinating to go to because in it there are the... I don't know if they're the ashes or if they're just words, but the names of the people who have passed are put inside little boxes. Mm. And once a year, all the people from there who have passed relations in the cemetery are taken out for a picnic. And they all go and have a picnic together and have the remains of the dead person with them. And that sounds similar to what you were saying. It's also celebrating
9: the
11: life of and the person. And it's celebrating isn't the life, it? yeah. Well, because we also
9: yeah. do that by lighting a yorkshire candle. Of um, course, we're celebrating the life uh, of the but, person. But we
11: also do the togetherness piece with Yisko. And mm. our festivals uh, at the last day of Pesach, the last day of Sukkot Shemin uh, on uh, Shavuot and on Yom Kippur, uh, we have a Yisko ceremony where people can come together. And I think and I think people do derive that comfort from being together with others.
12: One of the things that it also reminds me of is sitting shiver, and in fact, after we' finished here this evening, I'm going to a shiver for a friend whose mother has died, and this woman, I think, must have been well into her 90s, and I met her a couple of times, but I only met her as a very old lady. And what I'm looking forward to about going to the Shiva is hearing about her life. And when you go along to a Shiva, not only are you offering people the comfort of the group of people together, but you hear about this person, particularly with people who are very old, where you sort of never really knew that this was a, mm. a vibrant, exciting, dynamic mm. person. And, and it's terribly gratifying in a way. I, I always love to hear about the lives of these people and realise that I'm always sad that I didn't know them when they were young.
9: Isn't the shiver process just such a great thing, though? It's a marvellous thing. You know, because you've suffered grief, and then... You've got everybody with you and together and, and taking your mind off the grief. And,
10: and uh, you're given time to grieve, yeah. which uh, unfortunately so many people don't have that Well, non-Jews, chance. I mean often Non-Jews it's don't. two to
9: three weeks before they have a burial. And then, then, you, you know, I, know, I know non-Jewish friends of mine yeah. who, who think our process is absolutely brilliant. I've got one non-Jewish friend, since he's known me, lights a candle every year on the anniversary of his mother and father's death. Yeah.
10: There's another lovely thing. That's lovely, that lovely, isn't it? Lovely is a strange adjective to use in this sense, but there's another lovely thing that happens when someone close to you dies. When you come back from the cemetery, and chief mourners eat hard boiled eggs. Mm. And I was told by a rabbi, and I think it's wonderful, that the reason why you eat hard-boiled egg is because it means life is It's eternal. circular, yes. That's it's circular.
11: Circular. It doesn't end. Life, life has to continue. Yes. But, you know, I, I would be remiss if I didn't put in a, a sort of a pastoral word here, which is to say that, wonderful as it is to go to the shiva and be with people, mm. you also have to remember that they need support the day after the shiva and the day after that as well. Yes, All of too often, people are left by themselves themselves after the week so it's important to remember that uh, support is required for much longer than yeah that's just very the week important
10: it's, it's it's not just a week it's it's many months and Absolutely. sometimes even years the life cycle is very
9: interesting I, i've just had a, my 11th grandchild this week on the eve of first day Rosh Hashanah. Nice out, nice out Thank of. you very much. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, watching the kids grow up as well and all that sort of thing is, is nice, and that's part of, it. again, start of a new
10: year, start of a new life. Seem, but you know, there, is, there is a strange, what's the word? I can't think of the word, but there's a strange mixture in Rosh Hashanah in that you're there thinking of the past, the people who have passed, and at the same time, you're praying to the Almighty, asking for life for the whole of the new year. Mm. In a sense, it, it contradicts each other, doesn't it?
11: It does. But no, it, it, it's very much in accord with the greeting that we often use when we go to a Shiva house where we greet the mourner and we wish them a long mm-hmm. life. Now, you know, it's, that's exactly what it, we're saying with Rosh Hashanah. Although we have death around us, although we have death among us, we still know that life has to continue.
10: Yes. And that—that that is uh, the most important aspect of it.
9: Yeah. yeah, life goes on. Life must go on. Yeah. We, we have people to care for. Uh, and we have people that want to care for us. So life must go on.
12: I was just thinking about the society we live in where people are living longer and longer and where people's bodies are remaining strong very often, where their minds are getting weaker and thinking to the future and what sort of world we are going to be leaving our children and the amount of care they're going to have to be providing for the uh, increasing numbers of elderly
11: people. Us elderly parents, yes. It's also the other way around, Laura, isn't it? Because I visited last month three centenarians, the oldest of whom was 108 and all three of them were totally bright with it, enjoying having conversations, talking about everything and so on. They were a little fragile, didn't hear quite so well, didn't walk around quite so well. So there is the, the obverse of bodies being strong and minds not so much. Mm. It, it
0: is, can be the other way around. Absolutely. Yeah. I, th- yeah. I think yeah. that's a marvellous way in which to end our discussion. Thank you very much for that. Really interesting discussion there and obviously so poignant at this time of year when, of course, so many of us do go and visit relatives' final resting places. So thank you very much indeed to the Schmooze team there. That was, of course, Clive with Tony and founder of Mitzvah Day, Laura Marks, and Rabbi Morris Michaels from Bournemouth Reform Synagogue. Now it's time to have a delicious-sounding recipe from Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips. Denise, what have you got for us this week? This Rosh
13: Hashanah... As usual, I've got a different honey cake and this one is made with honey blossom and lemon thyme. It takes about 20 minutes to make and 50 minutes to cook and perfect for 8 to 10 guests. The ingredients are 150 grams unsalted butter or we'll use margarine, make it parve. 150 grams of orange blossom honey, my favourite, three eggs separated, one lemon zest only, 200 grams of ground almonds, 100 grams polenta, one and a half teaspoons baking powder, half teaspoon of salt and three tablespoons of lemon thyme leaves. And what I love about this, there is no flour and no refined sugar. A perfect cake to start a healthy new year. And it also has a little honey lemon glaze. And that's made with 75 grams of orange blossom honey, juice of half a lemon and more lemon thyme sprigs. So the way to make it, you can use a loaf tin, and that's a kilo one, and line it with baking parchment paper. And what you're going to do is cream the margarine or butter honey until it's light and fluffy. Beat in the egg yolks, lemon zest, stir in the almonds, polenta, baking powder, salt and thyme leaves. So you've got a lovely thick mixture. And then in a separate bowl, whisk up your egg whites until stiff, Peaks of form and then gently fold into the honey mixture, stirring gently and then transfer to the cake tin. Bake for 45 to 50 minutes on 170 degrees centigrade, gas mark three, until it's cooked. And then for the syrup, nice and easy, mix all the ingredients together. That's the honey, lemon, thyme sprigs and pour it over the cake. Delicious.
0: Ah, Denise, as ever, I'm now salivating. Thank you very much indeed for that. If you would like to find out more information on that recipe and, of course, any of Denise's recipes, then you can always visit her website, which is jewishcookery.com. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thank you very much to all of our guests who took part in this special best of edition of the Jewish views. I'm, of course, talking about Gabby Jacobs and Alison de Gaulle, Ivor Baddiel, Shira Schiller, of course, talking about Max's Foundation, the Schmooze team and, of course, Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips. And thank you very much for listening to us at home. Don't forget, you can always listen to the most recent edition of the Jewish views by visiting our website. It's jewishviews.co.uk uk where you'll also find the facility to listen to all previous episodes as well the jewish views is brought to you in association with the jewish news and is part recorded at the studios of jewish care in london just to let you know that it will be business as usual for next week's episode but then after that will be another two weeks of best of Fifty Seven Seventy Seven. not in the least bit confusing one way or another please do join us next time here on the jewish views i'm phil dave goodbye